Welcome to the Final Draft Podcast. My name's Andrew Popel, and today I am joined by Jack Heath. The Final Draft Podcast, it is all about books, writing, and literary culture. Every week I broadcast Final Draft from the studios of 2SER in Sydney. And here at Final Draft, we are dedicated to exploring Australian writing, whether it be debut authors or the classics, the ones you know and love. These conversations are a way to look at the issues that drive the author's storytelling, to delve deep, help you discover more from the books you love, because these are the stories that make us who we are. To us, you're broadcast from the lands of the Gadigal people, and I'm recording on the lands of the Darug and the Gunungurra people. I want to acknowledge the traditional owners of those lands and pay my respects to their ongoing connection to their lands. Acknowledging these are unceded lands, and treaty has never been made with Australia's First Nations. Jack Heath is joining me on the show today. He is the best-selling author of 40 novels, might be more than 40 novels now, beginning with Hangman, which he wrote when he was like 17. Jack's joining me with his new novel. It is called Kill Your Husbands. It is like deliciously um, devious. It is fun. It is a thriller. There's a mystery. I had a lot of fun reading this novel. I'm glad to be bringing it to you now. I hope wherever I am finding you, you are getting a chance to relax with a book. And uh, if you're looking for your next read, maybe it's Kill Your Husbands. Let's find out. Join me as we discover Jack Heath's Kill Your Husbands. It is my pleasure to be welcoming to the show Jack Heath. Jack is the best-selling author of 40 novels, beginning with Hangman, which he wrote when he was 17. Now, today, he joins me with his new novel. It is called Kill Your Husbands. Jack, welcome. It's so great to have you here. Thank you very, very much for having me. It's good to be here. And this is, like, kind of kind of thrilling. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give an introduction here just to dangle a hook out there for the dear listeners. Now, I think we all know that it's hard to find a chance to disconnect and relax in our modern world. And when six friends get the chance of a weekend away in the woods, it seems like the perfect opportunity to let their hair down. Couple swapping may not be the most conventional way to unwind, but when everyone agrees, the scene is set for a wild night. That is, until one of the six turns up dead and the race is on to discover the killer before they strike again. Jack, I think I've successfully dangled that hook. I am also going to uh, I'm going to pop a wee bit of a content warning on our chat. As people may have gathered from the synopsis, there may be some sexually explicit uh, content that comes into the conversation. If that's not what people are ready for right now, tune out. Maybe come back to 2SER.com, listen back, catch us on the podcast. But may mm. I, I, I just... Kill Your Husbands, okay, it follows on from your earlier novel, Kill Your Brother. I guess I really want to start by asking, does your family get nervous at gatherings? <laughs> my my mother does. I recently, so Kill Your Husbands has just come out and uh, the reviews, you know, you're always a little bit nervous about the reviews in the lead up to um, the publication of a book. But in this case, they've been overwhelmingly positive, except for from my mother, who she said she'd finished reading it. And I said, oh, what did you think? And she said, as a book, it was fine, <laughs> which wasn't, you know, the, the glowing praise that I'd been hoping for. But uh, my my brother took it much more in the spirit that it was uh, that it was intended. <laughs> He's just relieved after the last novel. 
<laughs> yeah, that's right. My, um, I, I didn't intend to write a whole kill your series, but ultimately I, I like to think of myself as a canny businessman. So if this does well, then I'll have, uh, you know, kill your boss, kill your second cousin, you know, kill your, I don't know, who, <laughs> however many people I can think of. Whoever you want, please send requests to Jack Heath at, no, I'm, I guess the natural follow on here is like you started out your writing career with the high paced crime solving alongside your protagonist, Timothy Blake. But we're very far away from that world. And I really want to ask, is the real danger within families, within close connections? Yeah, I think um, in, in this particular book, it came from a place where I wanted to, back in 2013, at the height of kind of Fifty Shades of Grey mania, I um, I thought, hey, I should get in on that action. I mean, the the, the book sales action. <laughs> and I, so I started trying to write an outline for a romance novel. And um, and I never quite got it working because I'm not a romance writer. That's a, it's a very particular skill set and I don't have it. But I had this kind of partner swapping idea where you'd have um, three marriages and a partner swap that led one couple to rediscover their love for one another and another couple to realize that um, they should, you know, make the swap permanent because they were supposed to be together all along. As sort of, so it was going to be a kind of second chance romance on the one hand and a sort of more standard happily ever other after on the other and there was going to be one woman who why am i even telling you about this book that doesn't exist the point is i never got it working and it was only years later when i was um uh, kill your brother had done really well and I, I wanted to write another australian crime novel and i circled back to that romance partner swapping idea and thought yeah but what if they all killed each other <laughs> and then suddenly i got the tingles like i i as soon as i get an idea and i think um i would immediately buy that book mm-hmm. if i saw it in a bookstore then yeah <laughs> i i wrote write that book i mean it's fabulous too i like i can feel the ghosts of that book in kill your husbands even even though it's clearly a very different novel well, yeah, it was fun to to be kind of flexing some of the writing muscles that I don't usually get to experiment with, if that makes any sense. It's uh, th- there are scenes in it which I think wouldn't be out of place in uh, maybe this is me big noting myself, but in a Holly Wainwright book or a, a um, you know Sally um, uh, Sally blanking on her last name, which I feel bad about because she's good yeah that's the one <laughs> thank you sorry just drew a blank there shout out um, to sally she's she's popped on uh, final draft before as well love her, love her uh, writing oh fantastic i would love to know how she wrote the soulmate that's such an amazing book but yeah i i was actually reading a a book a year or so ago um a couple of years ago called i'm giving my marriage a year by holly wainwright and i just loved every second of it and so i wanted to write something about that something about the sort of the falling apart of a marriage that make it really, really enthralling. But because I'm known as a crime writer, there also needed to be murder. So mm. I, I like to think that Kill Your Husbands would be exciting even if no one got killed, but I'll leave that up to the readers to decide. And, and look, it, and then they don't. People get killed. because this is, And this is a visceral, at times, graphic read. And there is there is something about a thriller that just grabs people. And look, I know in the sort of the business side of things, publication timing, it's really there to help get an audience just as we're all getting ready for summer downtime. 
Why do you think the patently tense and not at all relaxing type of stories are exactly what we turn to when we want to unwind? Yeah, it's interesting because at the start of my um, career, I definitely was an escapist reader. I would read sci-fi, I would read fantasy, um, anything other than you know, my own life. I didn't want to read about life as a teenager in Canberra because I was a teenager in Canberra. And and so if I wanted, I remember thinking if I wanted realism, I'd pay attention to reality, (laughs) you know, but these days I definitely read to feel seen. Um, I, I look for those moments in a book that are things that I've experienced in real life and, but never seen written down before. And then often uh, they're things they're you know quite personal things so when you read a book that has a moment in it where a character experiences something that you've experienced but never talked about and never seen replicated anywhere else you have this moment of realizing you're not alone that mm. like you and your fellow humans have more in common than you think so i was trying to capture that but like you were saying um in the lead up to the summer there's a desire for escapist thrillers as well so i'm always kind of walking that tightrope between um between helping the reader uh, feel seen, but also giving them a bit of wish fulfillment and giving them escape. But uh, I think ultimately this is kind of a be careful what you wish for story. Like if people are going away on holiday this summer and they're taking this book with them, I like to think, <laughs> and again, maybe this is more literary ambition than I, than I should. Uh, you, you, again, you and the reader can be the judge, but I like to think that maybe they'll go on holiday being a little bit unsatisfied with their marriage and thinking about a a partner swap of their own or some infidelity or something. And then at the, by the end of the book, they'll think, actually, you know what? Things aren't so bad. (laughs) Yeah, this is, I mean, this is beautifully both anticipating my, my next question and also just public service announcement. Please read to the end of kill your husbands before considering throwing your keys in the bowl um because you do you 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 set the scene you set the scene for your couples to agree to a night of this sort of no strings uh sexual partnering but of course there are the the emotional and the moral dimensions here that are just not so simple i really wondered like how did you go about and did you find it challenging crafting their interior worlds and also their justifications for the characters? Because you really need all of that to make this setup plausible. Yeah, I really do. But I also think, I mean, that's one of those challenges mm. where the challenge is half the fun. I knew it was going to be difficult, but I also knew that that was the main reason I was interested in writing this book and and telling this story. You know, I didn't, um, and again, I don't want to like badmouth any other authors, but there was a, a reader who sent me a link to another book that sounded a lot like my book. This was before Kill Your Husbands came out and right before, you know, too late to change anything. Um, the book was called Three Doors, and it had, you know, three couples and a partner swap in the dark. And I went, oh, no, oh, no. But it wasn't um, a crime novel. Uh, it was, uh, you wouldn't even necessarily call it a romance novel. I would have just called it um, a, an erotic novel, basically, mm. the, the the couples all just kind of bang each other. <laughs> and there wasn't a lot of that kind of interior conflict, which doesn't mean it was a bad book, but it, it's very, very different from my book. So I think... Um, 
uh, I was worried when I was working on Kill Your Husbands, I said to my wife, as soon as I started writing it, I realized that I was going to have to kind of start mining my own personal experiences. I've never killed anyone for the record. I've never done a partner swap either, but um, but I have been married for 13 years. And so my wife and I have had, you know, various arguments about various things. And I knew I was going to have to include some of them. So I was saying to my wife, look, um, people are going to think this is us. And some of it is. So <laughs> what do we do? And she said um, to her, I'm eternally grateful to her for this. She said, babe, speak your truth. Just write the book you want to write. We'll worry about what other people think of us later. And that kind of gave me the freedom to go, okay, well, I had um, yeah, postpartum depression after the, the birth of my oldest child. I can put that onto one of the characters and kind of uh, make him feel real because I'm using my own experiences and then disguise him so no one notices by making him someone who would never, ever pick up a book. And meanwhile, I can also reflect on the fact that um, it's kind of that I'm, I'm sometimes envious of female friendships. They mm. seem from the outside to be more open and generous and um, uh, understanding than male friendships that often seem a bit either closed off or competitive to me. Mm. Um, they say that no man is an island, but I kind of feel like every man is. Mm. But I'm also aware that perhaps I'm the last generation of men to feel that way. So it was fun to kind of write about a character my own age who was experiencing that sort of loneliness and that inability to talk with things, uh, talk about things that matter with him, with, you know, not only his partner, but his friends. But then again, I make him like a gym junkie. So no one knows it's me. <laughs> so I guess what I'm saying is that those interior conflicts, yeah, they were hard to insert into a thriller, but they were also the main reason that I wanted to write the book. That's fabulous. I, I, I love all of that right from the, the novel that was, the, I guess, depending on your preference, the Armageddon to your deep impact kind of. <laughs> you know, remember that phenomenon? The, the bug's life to your ants. Yeah, through to, I mean, I guess, I guess you know, you guys could always just it's take a photo every day of, of your wife holding the day's newspaper so that when people say, is this you? You just go, no, see, we've got, um, <laughs> you keep looking over. Uh, <laughs> is she just off camera? <laughs> Hello. Uh <laughs> I'm within earshot, so yeah, be careful what you say. I'll be careful what I say. I you you've you've got me turning over my entire interview process here as well because I really wanted to explore this, and I had a few questions coming later because it was it was really fascinating that of course we have like it, this is a pacey book. I don't I don't I don't get to do life is just too busy for me to do like read in one sitting anymore but I still inhaled this book in just a few nights reading before bed like the but despite it being a page turning sort of momentum I still found myself pondering those moral dimensions of the story and were you hoping that some of this discussion the way you you draw out characters the way you really want to put elements of your world in here, were you hoping readers might explore some of that deeper messaging around the way the couples are negotiating themselves? Yeah, I, 
I think so. I mean, I try not to to write in a um, in a didactic mm-hmm. or preachy way. I I think uh, uh, the novel is not well suited to the the polemic. Like it's it's much better at raising questions than it is at giving answers. Um, the great writer Graham Simsian gave me a piece of advice once. He said, "Never try to say never try to say anything with a book. Trust me, your worldview will come through on its own." Mm-hmm. And I think there's definitely something to be said for that but as far as some of the questions that it raises i'm often i'm uh, i'm often sort of interrogating myself a little bit like again mm. let me put another sort of um sexual content warning ahead of this so if you mm. if you're listening to this with kids in the car block there is for a second but there's a um uh, there's a sort of bdsm related subplot uh that mm. that rears its head partway through. And that was partly because I was aware or started to realise that I had a bit of a double standard in my own head where um, if someone had said to me that they really liked being, you know, tied up and, um, and, you know, bound, gagged, hit, whatever, uh, then I would be like, okay, you do you. Like, mm. I'm not into that, but live and let live. I, um, I, uh, uh, and I don't need to, <laughs> I don't need mm. to enjoy the same things as you. The world needs all yeah. kinds of different people. You're going to yuck their yum. Yeah, but if someone else said to me, oh, what I really enjoy is, you know, tying up women and gagging them and hitting them, then I would... And even if they added, but only if they are into that, I would still think, oh, that's creepy. I don't like that at all. Mm-hmm. So that that that's a kind of double standard that I became aware of in my own brain. So mm-hmm. part of this novel was me kind of unpacking that and recognising the importance. Oh, man, this is starting to sound like a dating advice podcast, but recognising the importance of communication and understanding and trust. <laughs> like the, the particular subplot in the book about that, everything would have been fine if they'd just talked honestly about what they wanted from one another. And uh, so if there's a message, I think that's probably the strongest message in the book. That is so gorgeous. Like if I could have, because that was a message, that was something that I took away from from the book. And I, you know, I think communication is, It's I do radio, of course, I think communication communication is important. Um, and so th- th- it's it's amazing to hear you say that because that is like if you could encapsulate, I want to talk about horror in a second, but um, I'll, I'll just nod to it now because, you know, in a, in a horror film, there's always that moment where someone says, don't go down into the basement. And while, right. <laughs> while Kill Your Husbands doesn't specifically have a don't go down into the basement moment, it does have this broader, like, if you all just like talked and listened to each other type of uh, element, then this would be a very different, possibly unsellable book. (laughs) Yeah, probably. But I also think, I mean, on the one hand, the characters are my puppets. I can get Mm. them to do whatever I want to, to make the story work so which is the other reason that that the novel um isn't a good method for you know being like an essay because i just made the characters do that thing so how can they be demonstration of anything but i also feel like um that's the the don't go into the basement thing uh there are so many mistakes that the characters make over the course of this book but i like to think they are understandable ones Mm. they're i they're the kinds of things where um every marriage is or every relationship um be that romantic or otherwise is full of 
communication problems. But what I guess what's different about uh, a marriage especially is that uh, you you sometimes feel like the two of you have fused into the single entity, mm. um, but the fact is you still have two separate brains. Like mm. my my wife and I have been married for I think it's thirteen years now, and um, some of your listeners will have been married for even longer than that. And I bet you fall into the trap of thinking you know what the other person is thinking all mm. the time, whereas in reality you might only know what they're thinking like sixty seventy percent of the time. So uh, and. And it's in that remaining, you know, 40 to 30 percent that um, hopefully not murder, but disaster can definitely strike. And we can live we can live in those spaces in our safe lives through your book. I want to I want to get a little bit to style, Jack, because I think it is so important in the way we experience the novel. Now, Kill Your Husbands unfolds through the twinned narratives of the murderous weekend, which happens in the past and your detective Kiara Louis investigation. You set this up. This is Kiara's first case as a detective. She's got a lot riding on the outcome. But it struck me, though, without the procedural elements of the police investigation, this would be almost straight up horror. You've already talked about one previous iteration of the story. Were you ever tempted to go in different genre directions here? Um, I never was, but I'm, I'm really glad that you've unpicked that because it's partly I had the plot with the three couples on the mountaintop with no phone reception and the partner swap and one of them secretly picking off the others. Um, I had all that from the beginning and I wasn't sure if it should be a Kiara Louie thriller or a Timothy Blake thriller. Like, so I, it never occurred to me to take out the police procedural aspect and turn it into a horror novel. I think that would have been um, an interesting way to go and maybe a, a talented horror author, which I'm not for the record, uh, might've been able to pull it off. Um, but instead the fact that Kiara's storyline is uh superfluous to the plot on the mountain obviously that it would still work without it because she doesn't come into the picture until um until later is an interesting thing to highlight i don't think so she she adds a couple of things to the story one is that she turns it into a crime story because it, uh, one of the most important parts of a crime novel is that justice is done at the end and mm. without kiara's intervention there would be no no justice here but also I think um, I didn't want the novel to be too bleak or rather I wanted it to be bleak, but not unrelentingly. Mm. I needed to make the reader laugh. Um, I needed to sometimes get them a bit hot under the collar, that kind of thing. I wanted them to experience a range of different emotions and Kiara's relationship with her girlfriend is the sort of heartwarming one for me. Like Mm. that's kind of me patting the reader on the shoulder and saying, yeah, but it's not all bad, <laughs> you know, like some marriages don't end in in death. Well, actually, let's not unpack that statement too much. <laughs> <laughs> this grand project of life, that's where we're all heading, but uh, not necessarily on a mountain trop, mountaintop weekend. I'm interested there you mentioned uh, two of your, your big protagonists and I, I'm not sure if you were suggesting that it could have been Timothy Blake in a different iteration, but I am really yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I am really interested in what's important for you in crafting an investigative heroic protagonist and fitting them with the story. 
Yeah. Well, um, Timothy Blake and Kiara Louie are obviously very different in, um, in a lot of ways. I would argue that they both occasionally exercise poor judgment. Mm. <laughs> um, one of them is a cannibal and the other merely makes honest mistakes in the course of her police work. But um, I think those those flaws are an important thing for driving the narrative forward. Um, I think uh, mostly what I'm looking for, though, is uh, when, I'm, when I'm trying to choose an investigator, is I want them to be personally invested, like mm. to have a reason to be personally invested in the case. Neither one of them, neither one of those investigators is in it just for the paycheck, right? Mm. There, there's always some kind of personal connection there. If you read a crime novel where a police officer was just doing their job and the satisfying ending is supposed to be that they collect their paycheck at the end, then, then you would be a deeply unsatisfied reader. You've got to kind of make it personal. The other thing I wanted do is kind of give them an interesting worldview. Mm. Now, with Timothy Blake, that's very easy because he's a cannibal. He looks at everyone as though they are a piece of meat. And that means that I can kind of spice up the descriptions a little bit and, mm. and kind of there's opportunities for dark humor there and stuff. So uh, Kiara Louie isn't as preposterous a character, which made her more difficult to write in that sense. Um but again, that's so that's one of the harder things, but it's also one of the more fun things. So in I, I've written about Kiara Louie once before. She was in Kill Your Brother, although she played a fairly minor role. Mm. This time I um I kind of sat down at my keyboard and went, okay, so who are you really? What are what are the things that you worry about? What are the things that you hope for in the future? Why is it that you care about this town and its people, even though they treat you like garbage and they treat the woman you love? even worse. Mm. Um, so, yeah, so I look for those things. I look for their flaws, I look for their skills, and I look for their worldview and um, and hopefully, hopefully <laughs> find a natural way for them to solve the case. And, a part, and, a, and I guess a big part of that and a part of our, an unspoken part of our conversation is that there is this case to solve. We have the challenge of discussing Kill Your Husbands as it, like, it, it, it launches out into the world. You're going to be launching it in Sydney today as uh, as we go to air and we're going to mention those details in just a sec but as a as a baby book in the world we don't want to give away too much mm. but thinking stylistically that I think that works really well as I read your book I noticed a real feature of your writing is restraint knowing what to leave out so that the reader so that your characters only know enough to keep them moving forward What's involved in that balance? Like, do you is is this a are you a are you a plotter or a pantser? Are there um are there structural edits where you realise you you might need to move that five pages back? I I was really interested in that restraint you exercised. Yeah, uh, I don't think anyone's ever praised me for restraint before, and <laughs> so that's uh that's quite an honour. Thank you very much, Andrew. I appreciate that. Oh, it was um, it was extraordinary, and I I just just wanted to elaborate for you. Sorry there, Jack. Is that you? Like I noticed moments where it literally felt like you clipped a sentence and if you'd continued it, you might have given us just a little bit too much uh, that then we then learned later. And I just thought, I thought, wow, there's a, there's a hand, there's a hand behind this. And I was really curious. I'm like, I'm going to talk to this person. Yeah. Wow. Um, did you read the book more than once perhaps? Because you're really talking like you did. Uh, no, no. In fact, okay. I, um, are you a writer? I raced down? through, I've been doing this for, 
10 plus years. So <laughs> I, 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 I found, I find myself, I mean, we're going to get, we're getting into the weeds here, Jack, but you know, that kind of idea of, of narratology and stories having shape. Yeah. So, you know, often we, if, when we know books, we, we start to think, oh, I know, I know what vessel you're pouring this narrative into. And maybe I can, maybe I can sort of fit the pieces together, which is of course, what a good, good story, a good detective story is going to do. But then we, f- we look for that in the writing. And so, like, as an example, and, you know, I don't think I'm going to give anything away here, but there were points in the novel where you were both asking us and, qu- and asking us to question our assumptions about who it might be. And I found myself thinking, well, it has to be all there in the book. It has to be all there on the page. Who have you introduced that it could possibly be if it's not who I think it is? Um and I noticed the way that you uh, you could have given bits of information and you teased that a bit of information was about to come. And again, as I said, you pulled back. And it, it was all in that mm-hmm. restraint that made me go, all right, what's coming next? What's coming next? Okay. So, well, you're absolutely right about sort of clipping those sentences, but um, often after the fact i've i found that with a first draft they stephen king says second draft equals first draft minus 10 percent. that isn't always true for me but i think it's it's a useful way to think about things that when you are writing a, a first draft sometimes it's a good idea to overwrite you you give every bit of backstory as it occurs to you you um reveal what the characters are thinking and then in your second draft you kind of pull back a bit and go like, actually, the reader doesn't need to know that just mm. yet. Um, and just by way of example for for this book, there's a scene, um, the, the very first scene that I wrote involved a hit-and-run victim being found on the side of the road by Kiara Louie and... Then the second scene that came after that was a woman running down the mountain in a dressing gown and slippers mm-hmm. and then getting um, getting picked up by a, a driver. But, well, a, a car stops, she faints, and then the next thing we know, she's in hospital. And it wasn't until quite late on mm-hmm. that my publisher suggested moving, swapping those scenes around um, or possibly getting rid of the hit-and-run victim. And I didn't mm-hmm. want to get rid of the hit-and-run victim because um, that that scene has both thematic and plot importance uh, later on. Um, it introduces Kiara. It introduces her relationship to Elise. There's all sorts of stuff going on there. But I was open to making the the doing the switcheroo, and so when I swapped them around and reread it. The thing is, writing is really just reading. You you mm. kind of it's reading, but with the power to make changes. Yeah. So I constantly have my antenna up, looking for opportunities to make it a little bit better. Not a lot better because I never notice those things. It's it's the the aggregate of thousands and thousands of tiny changes. But in this case, when I I swapped the chapters around and then I had Felice, uh, I had a woman running down a mountain, <laughs> and she stopped, uh, and the the car stops. And then she faints and then there's the hit and run victim. And I went, hey, if I pull back a little bit, if I just delete the scene of her fainting in front of the car and the car stopping and stuff, I could just end with the headlights. And then when we cut to that next scene with the hit and run victim for a little while, 
the reader will think it's her. So that's just the kind of opportunity that I didn't plan that. It's just that I had my antenna up looking for opportunities and I wasn't just looking for things I could add. I was looking for things I could delete and trying to imagine the emotional state that the reader would be in at any given time. This is why it's easier for me to write for adults than for children. When I'm writing for adults, I can just make changes and see if they feel better or worse. Whereas when I'm writing for children, I make changes and then try to imagine if they would feel better or worse if I was a kid and not just the kid that I was back in the 90s if I was a kid in 2023, which yeah. is much, much harder. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And I would also – I just also have to note to you that just a, a beautiful visual cutscene. Like you have done some director's work for them when they adapt this. Like that's <laughs> that scene is just going to work perfectly. I'm glad you didn't cut – I'm not going to say which one of those, but I'm glad you didn't cut either because one of those was the scene that gave it away for me. That was the, I, I. That was how I solved it. For coming yep. coming back to that scene, and wonderful. Which, I'm which so glad about that. Brings me to: Do you want your readers playing armchair detective? Do you want them riding alongside Kiara? Because this isn't this isn't your standard who done it. This isn't. Uh, it, it isn't exactly. Um, uh, you know the the um, golden age detective club type of uh, mystery, but it is possible to play along. Yeah, I had an interesting conversation with Benjamin Stevenson about this. He wrote a, a wonderful, wonderful novel called Everyone in My Family Has Killed Someone, and he's got a new one out called Everyone on This Train Is a Suspect. And he's the kind of writer who definitely wants the reader to be playing armchair detective and trying to figure it out as they go along. Whereas it's funny. I am not that kind of reader myself. I never try to guess where it's going. Like sometimes I will guess where it's going, but I'm very content to just let the, to let myself be led by the writer to, to let the story sort of wash over me and until we get to the sort of aha moments along the way. Um, so, I mean, uh, what you want is the reader to, when they get to each twist, to think, of course, as opposed to, huh? Yep. <laughs> and so you don't, um, I think it, it is satis it can be satisfying for a reader to predict a twist, but it can also be frustrating if they guess it too far in advance. Mm. So I'm always, and coupled with that, the, every reader is different, right? And mm. some, some are going to be more enthusiastic participants in the detective game than others. So, um, Obviously, everyone's mileage may vary, but my sweet spot with my readers is I'm always trying to give them clues that they detect, um, that they sense are clues so they don't discard them. They go, oh, okay, that's interesting. Why is he telling us that? Um, but I want them to predict twists and then the twists happen and they go, aha, but it's like I want them to be a step ahead of me mm. or one step behind me, but I don't want them miles behind and I don't want them miles ahead either. We, um, it's, we're kind of like marathon partners. You know, one of us is the support team and the other is the runner. I'm not sure which is which, but I don't want their knowledge and their expectations to get too far behind or ahead of my own. I, and I come back to what I, my comments before about restraint because, of course, we go in 
knowing or having expectations, maybe hoping the shape of the narrative will be what we want, but it's where it shifts. It's where it takes sudden left turns that keeps us going. And, and as to, I guess those clues, my, my wife and I have a little, when we're, when we're watching shows, not to, it'd be great if we could read along. Imagine doing a group read. But- the audio book of kill your husbands is uh, really good. There's a nine actor cast. You could go to bed with your, with your spouse and listen, <laughs> listen along. Long in uncomfortable silence as uh, marriages are detected, uh, deconstructed before your eyes. In in whatever medium we discover it, though, we have this little little tradition where when we see something that we feel is, you know, flagged as important as a clue, what have you, we refer to. Um, whatever it is, and we insert it into, you know, the, you know, the Chekhov's gun phenomenon in, mm. so we'll look at it and we'll just be like, you know, it might be a goose flying over. We go, oh, that's Chekhov's goose right there. And we may not know <laughs> its significance, but if it's flagged, we go, all right, we know that's significant. Let's keep an eye it's, on that. It's funny how um, going back and listening to the audio book and because uh, I, I obviously can't keep the whole book in my head. Mm. Uh, so that means listening to the audio book, I often get to bits and pieces that I realise, oh, I forgot I put that in. But I never, um, it has reminded me of the fact that I do everything on purpose. So even the things that aren't really flagged or signposted, they are, they're there for a reason. And since you bring up Chekhov, the, we were talking about the hit and run victim earlier and his, his surname is Rabek. And um, there's a famous Chekhov story called the kiss about a, um, a man who, walks into a darkened room at a party and is kissed by a woman who thinks he's someone else. And um, and then the woman realises that he's actually a stranger and says, you know, get out, and he gets kicked out, but he's nevertheless very pleased to have been kissed in a darkened room by a beautiful woman. And um, all that happened at Von Rabeck's mansion. So I'm, I might be a little bit insecure about the fact that I dropped out of university. So I, I drop little things like this in, like naming that character Rabak right at the beginning. So readers who really, really know their Chekhov will, will know the kind of story that I'm telling. But mm. also it's kind of me sort of bristling in advance and saying, yeah, yeah, I dropped out of university, but I've read Chekhov, so get off my back. <laughs> and now you've got me absolutely going beat red as I think back. My made-up example that I pulled out to uh, illustrate how we might use our, my wife and I use our cute little check of, I said a goose, not a bloody seagull. <laughs> oh yeah. Seagull would have been even better. Oh, <laughs> uh, Jack, this is, this is tremendously fun and, and kill your, kill your husband's, is a tremendously fun book. It doesn't feel right saying, uh, you know, a multi-murder uh, thriller is a tremendously fun book, but it, it absolutely is. And I guess my parting words would be, I loved the way you weaved the two stories. I loved the way you mentioned before, Kiara's story is not necessarily entwined, but that makes her own story stand on its own. Um, and also, I'd just nod to your, um, I'd nod to your romantic heart. I don't think you gave it enough credit before. Do you, um, like when you reflect back, you said before you can't have the whole book in your head. When you reflect back on the way you both explore, I guess, the vagaries of married life, and uh, the blossomings of romance. Do, c- can you give yourself a kinder, maybe a, a kinder review on that uh, romantic uh, romantic styling? 
Maybe. I, I don't know. I, I feel like um, <laughs> we could we could uh, bring my wife into this room and, and see what she says about this. But um, <laughs> definitely, again, I'm, I'm sort of part of what's hopefully that last generation of men that isn't really comfortable talking about their feelings, yeah. but I can sort of explore them through fiction. And I feel like maybe so these uh these three couples up on the mountaintop um i think flawed though all their marriages are um if the hands of fate had worked a little bit differently and a, a few coins had landed heads or or tails or a few dice had landed on six instead of on one and stuff then all three of those marriages might have worked out i think i reckon in some ways those three couples were, and it's not just about communication. I, I think so, you know, th this is my, my romantic heart. I don't know if this is true, um, but this is something that I, I feel deep down is that there probably isn't, uh, there probably aren't sort of marriages that are destined to succeed and other marriages that are destined to fail. And they were fated to be like that from the beginning. I think there's probably the potential for love, true lasting love mm. in almost every relationship. And so when a relationship falls apart, it's, it's often just, you know, bad luck with people who are doing their best. So I don't know if you'd call that a romantic viewpoint, but I feel like in, in this book, I at least, um, uh, again, I hope the, the readers kind of feel a little bit more gratitude for what they are lucky enough to have. Unless, of course, people reading this book, are, I've been assuming all along that people reading this book are wives because that's kind of my, my market. There are probably single fans as well. In that case, maybe they'll be very, very glad <laughs> to, to be like, whoa, glad I missed out on that. <laughs> Well, perhaps my final nod will be uh, a tease to the readers to acknowledge that the thing that you absolutely surprised me with uh, in the novel was that sort of little afterward postscript, which I thought revealed your romantic heart. But be we can talk about this off air, Jack. I am going to let people know that I am speaking with Jack Heath. His new novel is Kill Your Husbands. Thank you so much, Jack. I've really appreciated this talk. Thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure. Anytime. Thank you again to Jack Heath. Jack's new book is Kill Your Husbands. He joined me today. You are on the Final Draft podcast. Final Draft is recorded on the lands of the Darug and the Gunungurra people. The show is produced and presented by Andrew Popel. You can stay in touch with Final Draft. Subscribe. It means a new podcast every week. All across the summer, we will have summer sessions bringing you interesting conversations about Australian books. You can also find us on social media and reach out. Give us a rating. Give us a thumbs up, a star, however your podcast app lets you rate us. Or better yet, write a comment. It's a great way to share incredible Australian books with more people. I'm Andrew Popel. I will be back with more great conversations from incredible Australian authors. Until then, well, I want to say thanks. I want to say bye. And I want to say happy reading. <laughs>